You know, Scripture just said you become like little children, so I've got my rubber bands. You ready? Yeah. <laughs> Let's just turn our back and play for a while. No, you know what? Uh, we're so glad you're here. We're starting a series called Lighten Up, and we've been talking a lot this year about joy. And as I was preparing and praying through this and, and was thinking through the summer, and the summer just never came and never came. And I'm thinking, because I was thinking when I did this Lighten Up, we should have been doing this in June. Well, I think we're at the right time on this. One of the things that C.S. Lewis says is, is joy is the serious business of heaven. God takes it serious. And in his word, there's a few things that he says, you know, I really want to get serious about. And, and it's about play. It's about rest. It's about things like laughter. It'll be about blessing. And it'll be about romance. And those are things we're going to be kind of talking about in the next few weeks. And I was really excited to have Peter come and to start the series because... I don't know anybody who plays more than Peter. <laughs> Golf. And I, do you, you work? What the hell does he work? You guys? Well, anyway, we're really thrilled you're going to be you. here doing this, and God bless you. Thank you. I mean, as, as you know, Kevin, as I've sort of headed into the second half of life here, I'm trying to take inspiration from those who have gone decades before me. <clears throat> And so it was nice to work with Andrew this week to get that home video of you and your brother Keith growing up, because that really <laughs> helps substantially on that. No, it is, uh, it's good to be, I, I absolutely, I don't know that I've ever been in ministry where it has felt playful so often as working with Kevin and Joel and Andrea, and it's been really good for my spirit. There's been a lot there that even in preparation for this sermon, I've begun to realize. And so we're going to dive into this subject. I want to start by reading just a snippet from an article in a psychological magazine about the importance of play, and we'll continue to just sort of wind our way into this topic from here. Article, The Importance of Play for Adults, says this. Society tends to dismiss play for adults. Play is perceived as unproductive, petty, or even a guilty pleasure. The notion is that once we reach adulthood, it's time to get serious and between personal and professional responsibilities. There's no time to play. But play, it seems, is just as pivotal for adults as it is for kids. Play brings joy. It's vital for problem-solving, creativity, and relationships. In his book, Play, psychiatrist Stuart Brown compares play to oxygen. He writes, it's all around us, and yet it goes mostly unnoticed or unappreciated until it is missing. You ever been through those seasons of life where play is suddenly missing and you become aware of it if you've been in it long enough? Brown has spent decades studying the power of play in everyone from prisoners to business people, from artists to Nobel Prize winners. He's reviewed over 6,000, quote, play histories or case studies that explore the role of play in each person's childhood and adulthood. Among the findings he's discovered, for instance, is he found, I was surprised at this, that the lack of play was just as important as other factors in predicting criminal behavior among prisoners in Texas. He found that playing together helped couples rekindle their relationship. When's the last time you and your spouse played together, just in freedom? He found that play was good for exploring all forms of emotional intimacy, friendships, uh, not just necessarily married relationships. Play can even facilitate deep connections between strangers and cultivate healing. 
He said from his time of study that play tends to lead us into sacred spaces and touches people in powerful ways. So I thought that was pretty interesting and stuff that I was reading through. The article was very compelling uh, and the many pages that it was, that was just a snippet. But it caused me to ask myself the question then, then of you this morning, how well do I play? And how well do you play? Not just the play of escape, where then you go back to the burdens, but, but how well do you sort of have a posture of a heart that plays? You know, psychology indicates that it's healthy for our relationships. And I find I don't need a psychological journal to tell me that. Human life just seems to indicate that. I mean, you know what it's like when you get away and just play for a bit, right? About once a week, my buddy and I that I went through seminary with 15 years ago, he has five children, I have five children, we love our families, and uh, we still even try to, this day, once a week, get up around 6 o'clock and just play a real quick round of golf together. Super fun just to play. I, I root against his golf ball and tell him to hook it into the woods. He tells me, I hope you punch it into the water, and we rip on one another back and forth, even in the middle of a swing sometimes, and we have a great time just playing together. And funny how we end up talking about life together a little bit during those times, too. And I always feel refreshed then to go back to my work or back to being with my children and my wife. And on that basis alone, and I think you would all have similar stories, I think I could stand up here and exhort you to find space in your life this week to just play. Maybe 10 simple tips about how to create that space, get out and play. But even as I say that, and in reflection of what Kevin read from C.S. Lewis about these things are still a serious business in the kingdom of heaven, there's more to it maybe than just ten practical steps, it made me say to myself, I wonder if there is more. Would me exhorting you to just go out and play this week, is that enough for a sermon? Does that dive into the depths that maybe are there related to play? You know, I don't know, maybe I'm old-fashioned about this, but I like to dig and get my head around into certain subjects, and I'm often fighting and bantering with my university students who, as they're heading into this world of technology, love to reduce their lives to maybe these sound bites, Facebook, Twitter kind of messages that can be distilled down into a technological window. So I'm always fighting with them in class, and then I send them off to the library to grab an actual book. <laughs> and they think that's real funny. But it's fun. We have a good time with that. But I, but I find, and I don't know about you, but I find that those practical tips are very helpful in their way. But it seems like life sometimes is more complex than that. It seems that kingdom journey has more flavor and color and texture than just what can be reduced to 50 characters on a Twitter feed. So maybe I'm old-fashioned, but maybe there's more. So as you would imagine, in preparation for this sermon, I began to dig into this subject of play. And I never have before. I've never really thought about it. It's been mostly a guilty pleasure of sorts that is not meant for responsible adults. So if you were to dig into this subject like me, I don't know how you would approach it, maybe in a similar way, but I would kind of let my brain run free with just sort of observations that I might have about play. And the first one is what I just mentioned. I had four observations that came 
out of this. The first one was that I agree with the article that said that adults typically uh, are not really seen as people who should play, that it's irresponsible. So that was the first one. The second observation, as I just sort of thought about, is you know who's really good at play? Children. Right? I mean, it seems obvious. I find myself, if I just pause in my day for 30 seconds in our living room with my seven-year-old, the next thing I know, I'm running around with a toy sword after him who's playing the role of the mythical cave troll, and I'm trying to knock him out. Then I kind of come back into reality, right? Or if I sit down for even like 30 seconds in another room where my daughter might be, suddenly I find that my toenails are being painted at her pretend salon. Yes, sometimes my toenails are painted. They might be painted now. You don't know. (laughs) So I didn't wear sandals this morning. I actually once played, the British Open is being held at Muirfield this weekend. I once played Muirfield when we were living overseas, and I played it barefoot with painted toenails. It's a long story. Not going to tell it right now. It's my second observation. Children are good. I play the third one, and remember this one now as we dive into the meat of the sermon is this, is that I think one of the reasons why children are so often good at play is that they at least, in healthy circumstances, feel safe. They feel provided for. They feel cared for. Someone has their back. They're not burdened. They can kind of be free and at peace with their lives so they can just go out and play. It's beautiful to watch. Remember that someone is providing for them. And finally, I had these words ringing in the back of my mind as I was doing these observations, just remembering those famous words of Jesus that say something along these lines, let the little children come to me, right? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that seemed important given that Jesus' central message while he was on this earth teaching the people who followed him was what life was like in the kingdom of heaven. To live within his kingdom, to experience the wonder and the depth and the fullness and the wisdom and the mystery that is the kingdom of heaven, he said these words, the children get it. Well, that seemed important. And children are good at playing They often feel cared for. It made me go then to this place in my mind, which is driving then the rest of the sermon, when something like this. I wonder if our ability to play or not to play serves as kind of a spiritual barometer for our understanding of ourselves and how we are walking out life in God's kingdom. I wonder, in fact, maybe I'll even take it a step further, take a risk here, right? I'll go beyond wondering. I became relatively convinced, if not entirely convinced, in the two weeks of preparation for this sermon, that our ability to play or not to play, just in freedom, serves as a spiritual barometer for how we are walking out our lives with other people and how we are walking out our lives in God's kingdom. I'm going to try to support that. This morning, and as I do so, we're going to dive into the text a little bit in a, in a number of different kinds of passages. It'll feel a little bit like a biblical crumb trail, right? We'll have to kind of follow along. And I promise as we kind of dive in here momentarily that it's going to maybe feel a bit disconnected 
at first, and you'll wonder where in the world is he going with that. I didn't even know myself, so I'll share with you that part of the journey, and I promise by the end, I'll try to pull it all back together to support this notion that our ability to play or not to play serves as a spiritual barometer for our understanding of ourselves and for life in God's kingdom. So with that, let's pray as we begin, and then we'll dive into a story starting first in the Old Testament. God, I ask that by the power of your spirit, you would move among us and just provide us with just even the smallest of glimpses of life in your eternal kingdom, that it's here and is among us to step outside of so often how we perceive of life, all of us, and to see the wonder of who you are and of your realm, and of your stream of eternity. And help us become people who, as burdens are lifted, we become people who play in your kingdom. Ask these things in your son's name. Amen. So I think Andrea has uh, ready for us a story from Second Kings 5. The story of Naaman the Syrian. Have you heard of the name Naaman before? It's a, a, a Syrian general, a non-Jew, who was afflicted with leprosy. And he is going to go to the prophet Elisha to be healed. Now, the story is going to have some real significant implications for where we're going. But there's two things that I want you to keep in your mind's eye as we walk through the story. The first one we've already talked about. Let the little children come to me. For theirs is the kingdom. And add to that that Jesus once even said, a chapter before, he said, in fact, you need to become like a little child if you want to enter into my kingdom. You need to become like a child if you want to enter my kingdom. Just keep that in your mind's eyes as we read through this. The second thing is that this story is about other things, about power and about our sense of power about a a sense of who we are as people in relation to God and the power that we have or don't have. So keep those two things in your mind's eye, and I will read through stopping at some strategic points along the way. Now, Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He's a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. And leprosy among the Jewish people was uh, often one of these things that demonstrated an affliction of sorts, a covering of sorts, often of somebody's sin. Okay, It was both a physical manifestation, but it also revealed uh, a spiritual disease. There was leprosy there. Now, bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. Young girl in the Hebrew there literally means that she was likely somewhere between five and eight years of age. Central figure in the story here. She starts events in motion, a five to eight year old girl. She said to her mistress, because she can see if only my master, a non-Jew who was fighting with her people, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Now, interesting to note, again, if you were a Jewish person in that time, you would know that a parallel story was happening along with this one. It's the story of Jonah. And what was happening, if you know the Jonah story, is he was given the command by God to do what? To go to a group of non-Jewish people and declare the wonders of the kingdom. 
And what does Jonah do? This man, this prophet of God, he says, no. A little girl, five to eight years old, is somehow seeing rightly. And she's inviting a non-Jewish person to experience the wonders of the kingdom of God. Jonah had to be broken, didn't he? He had to be broken in order to start walking in the kingdom. This little girl gets it, okay? Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go. We'll kind of skip down. He's given a letter. He's given a bunch of money from his own king. And with this letter at the end, I am sending you, says his king, my servant Naaman, to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. We keep going. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he can't see. He's too consumed with his own power. He tears his robes. I can't, my God, can I kill and bring back to life? He's trying to pick a quarrel with me. This is all a trick. The powerful king can't see. Keep going. Elisha, of course, can see. And so he says, when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, just remember this piece of it. The messenger in the Hebrew there was an angel. Okay, Naaman's not going to be able to see that. But as we'll see in just a moment, messenger to say to him, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you'll be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he surely would have come out and stand and call in the name of the Lord. He's basically mad because he thinks Elisha has sent a servant and he wants the man of power to come out. He doesn't even recognize Elisha sent somebody even better, sent an angel. But he's upset he can't see. Okay? His servants can see, however, though. And uh, so keep going, Andrea. His servants then say, well, if the prophet has told you, go and do it, wash and be cleansed. And so Naaman is able to hear his servants. And he goes down and he dips himself in the Jordan seven times. And now catch this part. As the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored, leprosy is being cleansed, the metaphor of sin is gone. And what is his flesh restored into? It became clean like that of a young boy. Let the little children come to me, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Humble yourselves like a child, and children can play. That's interesting. We'll get back to that. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God, and now the man is broken. Naaman is broken. He says, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So as I mentioned, the story is about power. It's about those who can see. And it's a little girl who can see. She can see rightly. Naaman needs to be broken, and then he can see rightly. And as he does, his flesh becomes like that of a young boy. Jesus would have understood this. He would have grown up with this story. And the very first words of his very first sermon that he ever gave in the Sermon on the Mount, that very first beatitude says this. Follow the crumb trail now. It says this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Literally means happy are those who know they don't have what it takes. Happy are those who recognize the limitations of their power, Naaman, 
Happy are those who know they cannot experience the fullness of kingdom life on their own. They need a savior. For to them, the wonder and the mystery and the realities of the kingdom begin to be unfolded. And you know who often know they don't have what it takes? Young children. They just play. Oh, sure, you know, kids, if you're a parent, you know. Kids will rise up and they will rebel and resist at times, right? Caleb and Anna say, well, no, yeah. You guys have been perfect. I've never resisted when I was growing up. You can just, okay, I better be quiet. But, no, you know, knowingly or not, kids so often just live freely in the realities that somebody is caring for them. And so they play. Now, sometimes these guys know that uh, if there's sort of a day or a season where maybe there's a lot of back and forth between us as parents and kids in our family, sometimes I do something terribly rational, <laughs> like, you know, clean your room. No, uh, you know, eat your food. No, stop fighting. No, you know, all this. And so then, you know, the rational parent in me rises up and says, fine, you're in charge. <laughs> You get the food, you make the money, you cut the grass, you take care of your brothers, you change the diaper, you, you know, and it's just like, this is not parenting 101. But it happens, right? You know what's interesting, good or bad, that goes along with that. You know what's interesting? The very first thing that I notice among my kids when we go to that place, you know what they stop doing almost immediately? They stop playing. They stop playing, suddenly burdened with things that they are not meant to be burdened by, suddenly burdened with a responsibility they were not meant to carry, burdened with doubt and fear, their own safety and their own well-being, and immediately the play just disappears turns sort of into this anxious kind of panic. Nobody has my back. Nobody cares for me. The burdens become quite heavy. And you know what's interesting? As soon as uh, I lift the burden or say, no, you know, or they come back and they say, we don't want to be in charge. What do they do almost immediately? They begin to play. They begin to play. You're starting to see some of the connections about play being a barometer, perhaps, of our spiritual life, of life in the kingdom of God. Because did you know we were never meant to be in charge? Well, I mean, of course you know that, right? And yet if you're like me, knowing it and living into it are two very different things. Which makes sense because the fundamental sin of the Garden of Eden was the serpent coming to the man and the woman and saying, just eat of this fruit and what will happen? You will be like God. You won't need him anymore. That worked out really well, didn't it? And now I'll go back to Jesus' first words. Happy are those who know they're not like God. Happy are those that know they don't have what it takes. Happy are those that have bent their knee. Paul says, I die daily. Happy are those, for to them the kingdom unfolds. You want to know about the kingdom of God? You better become like a little child who knows these things. To get the joy and the wonder of the kingdom when we walk back in that way, we find that we are free. And I'm going to read at the end today. I'll get into this in a minute. I'll read at the end even some things from Proverbs 8 
that tend to indicate that right from the beginning of the foundations of the world, play was hardwired into what this world was meant to be. Before we get there, though, I need to just step back and recognize in this statement that play is often a spiritual barometer of of how we are walking out this life in God's kingdom. I find in my own life that if I look at that barometer, I'm not playing a whole lot. I might escape for a little while, right? And then I go right back in. And as I escape, the, the burdens are all still there. And then I kind of step back in and I medicate and I step back and a posture of the heart that plays. I often have a burden that never leaves. I thought of several burdens that I know I've carried throughout the course of my life or I know that people around me have carried uh, four in particular. See if any of these resonate with you. The first burden is one of provision. Relational provision, people that will care for us, financial provision, spiritual provision. What would it be like? What would it really be like to walk in God's kingdom in such a way that concern about your relational, financial, spiritual, any kind of provision was no longer an issue? What would that be like? What what if it was actually true in Matthew 6? When Jesus says, have you ever really looked at the birds in the air or the lilies in the field? They don't do anything. (laughs) And God cares for them. How much more is he going to care for you? What what if that was actually true? Because I'm spinning my wheels almost every week of my life to try to make sure that everybody's provided for, that I've got my job secure, that I've got my children's lives secure. And just, man, gee, that never feels like a burden, does it? And for those of us that struggle with that kind of thing, I have bad and good news. (laughs) Sometimes, if that's our sense or posture of our heart, if we really want that to change, it's going to require some wandering, maybe even in the desert. Remember the Israelites when they got to the promised land the first time? And they looked into the promised land, and they looked in, and God had said, go take the promised land, I will provide for you. And they're like, oh, there are giants in there, we can't possibly do that. You know, funny enough, they had just come through the Red Sea, that seemed like a pretty big deal, right? So giants shouldn't have been a problem, but they were somehow, and God's like, okay, I had you look this way, you're not ready for that yet, let me turn back this way. You're going to need to wander for a bit. You know what I'm going to teach you in that wandering? I'm going to teach you that I can provide in every possible way. It may not be provision as you think that it should be. Sometimes we don't see our provision because we think of what provision should be. But God will always provide. Maybe if it's in the ways that we don't anticipate. And so they wander through the desert and every day God shows up in the atmosphere around them with this manna that they can eat. They can't store it up. They can't go to Costco and buy like a year's worth of paper towels. They try to store it up, they put it in their jar, and and it just rots the next day. For 40 years they wandered so that God could show them that every day I will give you this day your daily bread. That's why Jesus understood that. What would it be like to live in that? Where, yes, we work hard. And, yes, we do everything we can. But somehow in the midst of that, we hold the tension of release 
and say, but God, it is yours. I trust that you will provide, even if it's in ways that I don't understand or ways that I don't think that they should happen. What would that be like? I wonder if we'd be free. And I wonder if I could play. Really, as a posture of my heart. A second thing that I thought of, it seems relatively obvious, was that of sin. That's a fun one to talk about. Anybody carry burden of sin around? I mean, what if it was true if God's forgiveness was actually real? What if this whole business about God coming in love to save his people from their ongoing sinfulness was actually true? What if we could trust him with the darkest corners of our hearts? That actually he runs towards those corners to transform us. That we could... Be tri- that he could be trusted with our sin, not just so we could escape some future judgment throne, though that is real, but in our daily life, that we could trust him with our sin. Let's make it tougher. What if we could trust him with the sin that we've done to somebody else that maybe that person doesn't even know we've done? You ever carried around the burden of lying to somebody, maybe close to you? You never told them? or cheating, or stealing, or unduly persuading somebody else's judgment so that you can get what you want from them, spinning information in such a way that you get what you want, and that person seems to just fully embrace that with you, but you know better. Ever carry that around? Does it feel like a bit of a burden? It feels really scary if you're going to go to that person and say, here's what I've done. Here's what I've done. Could, could God be trusted with that? Does he actually renew and restore that we just got done singing about a little bit ago? Does that actually happen? Because if that happened, though it might just about kill me to bring some of these things into the light, I wonder if I would feel free. I wonder if I could play. Not just around a golf, but as a posture of the heart starting to see why I argued in the beginning that our ability to play or not to play serves as a bit of a spiritual barometer for how we are walking out life in God's kingdom. Children are so often not burdened by all of these things, they just play. The third thing I thought of, which is, I think, consistent for most of us in here, is some measure of grief or loss that we carry. Some degree, all of us, there is dimension of relational brokenness and pain. Sometimes it is the loss of somebody close to us. A deep and trusted companion for life. And they're no longer here. It gets hard to see beyond that. Sometimes the grief comes because people that we know and love still on this journey of life, a friend or a child, or a spouse has told us we no longer want to do the journey with you. That's heavy stuff. That's the kind of burden, if you know of what I speak, you know sometimes it's difficult in the day to even find space to take the next breath. Much less try to move on with life, that there would be more, that I could continue this journey in some way. The pain is so... Profound in her lovely book, The Gift of the Redbird, written by Paula D'Arcy, who sometimes her wisdom has staggered 
me. She is writing of her own journey of suffering and pain and loss when she lost her husband and her young child in a car accident while she was pregnant with their second child. You want to know somebody who knows grief. So easy to get stuck in that place, to not think that there's anything ever beyond this, that there couldn't be more. She says this, I've noticed many things on this journey. I've noticed the length of the grief process. I've noticed the way God must continue to be followed and pursued. The fact that my understandings yesterday of God are already old. That it's only the immediate day and the moment right before me that matter. There is still so much to learn. This is a woman who lost everything. And somehow in her walking it out with God, she's saying these words, there's still so much to learn. And I see the degree to which I've limited years of intake of God with my own fear. It's clear that I never saw more than I was willing to risk seeing. But I recognize now the importance of continuing to see. If my seeing does not expand with God, then neither does my faith. And now the freedom and the beauty and the joy that I'm finding, it required risk. Ultimately, God so often remains mystery to me. But always, he says, will you continue to follow me? Even if there's nothing left to give you stability. Even if you can't understand where I am leading you. Even if you must wait for the things you desire, even in the darkness. God stands, says DRC, and asks, will you follow me? into the wilderness. Woman who lost everything. Could God be trusted in those moments? The final one, quickly, seems obvious to me as well. And that is the fear and the burden of our own mortality. thought about it. I thought, you know, we could probably do a long series titled How to Die Well. Gee, <laughs> that'd draw people in. Tough one for the sign out there, right? Yeah, come on in. We're going to talk about... Uh, yeah. But what I'm aware of, and it's obvious, that, of course, death is, to this point, undefeated. Save by one. I wonder what it would be like, with our sense of our mortality, always in our face, if we could lean into the one who's already walked through the valleys of the shadow and came out the other side. You familiar with that passage of scripture where it says Jesus is the author of our faith? The Greek word for author there is the word archagos. And the archagos was somebody who was part of a Greek military unit, one single person who was a strong swimmer. And so when the military unit got to a body of water or a river that they could not cross themselves, they tied the rope around the waist of the Archegos, and he swam through the waters, thus creating a way for everyone else to come through as well. Jesus says he is our Archegos, our author. He has swam through the waters of death. Grab a hold of his rope. I wonder if that is true. I wonder if I could live that way, if that burden, even somehow in some crazy way, would be released, that, that death really doesn't have a sting. What? I think I'm going to need to become like a child 
to get the wisdom and the depth of that kingdom mystery. Not as a theological proposition, I understand, but as an abiding reality in my heart and the very way in which I see the world. So I just have a posture of freedom and play. So I could have given you 10 simple steps to just go out and play some golf this week, catch a movie, go hang with some friends at a coffee shop. You'll feel better. My concern would be that that would just be escaping from the burden, not lifting the burden. Because lifting the burden requires depth of kingdom life, of which honestly few people I fear even know. But if you seek first the kingdom, there's going to be a lot that's added unto you, including these things. I promised a little bit ago that I would end with a passage of scripture. I mean, who reads Proverbs 8? I mean, I'm guessing, Kevin, you do. You're much more spiritual than me, so you get into Proverbs 8. Um, I had never read. I mean, I know. I teach this stuff. I should have read the whole Bible and have it memorized. But I hadn't read Proverbs 8 before this week in this way. And I was dumbfounded by what I saw. What I saw that it seems to be hardwired into the universe. I'm just going to end this morning reading a brief snippet of Proverbs 8 related to the play of life starts out, wisdom is calling. Understanding is raising her voice. Listen, says wisdom, I will say worthwhile things. For when I speak, my words are right. Adonai made me in the beginning of his way. I was the first of his ancient works. I was appointed before the world started before its beginnings. And when I was brought forth, there was yet no ocean depths or springs brimming with water. I was brought forth before the hills or the mountains or even the first grains of dust. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew the horizon circle on the deep and set his skies in place and the fountains of the deep poured forth. When he prescribed the boundaries of the sea and marked out the foundations of the earth, I was with him as someone he could trust. And in the Hebrew where it says someone he could trust. It literally says, I was with him as his architect, which also is the very same word in Hebrew for a child. I was with him as the architect child he could trust. And it says after that, then listen to this. I was with him as the architect child he could trust. And for me, every day was pure delight. I played in his presence all the time, playing everywhere on this earth and delighting to be with humankind, playing everywhere on this earth. Wisdom, playing everywhere on this earth. Wisdom in the Old Testament literally is just your ability to see as God sees. A child architect embedded into the very fabric of creation to delight and play. Why? Well, not a lot of burden. There, just the wonder of creativity and joy and laughter. Therefore, children, listen to me. Happy are those. Does that sound familiar? Jesus' first beatitude? Happy are those who keep my ways. Happy are those who delight and play the way that I do. Whatever the burdens are this morning that we carry, I'm just going to encourage you to think about this week and in the months even ahead to move away from the play of escape and into the kind of play 
were the deep wonders and mysteries and realities, but very real things of the kingdom of God are let loose in your heart and your minds so that the burdens can be lifted and that we can become people who just freely delight in the wonder of every part of who God is. I'm going to ask the worship team to come in. In a moment, we're going to sing and uh, allow for you to respond. But I just have to say thank you, Peter, for sharing that word. But more than that is the fact that what we want to become is a people who fully walk in the kingdom of God. Jesus, when he prayed, he said, Dad, um, you are holy. And then he went on to say, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth here, just like it happens all the time in heaven. And I think God wants to create playful hearts. And my prayer is that we sing the song in a moment that if there is, you're kind of going, boy, God, I'm so afraid. You know, are you going to provide? Are you going to do this? Is to, to lean into the arms of your father. I mean, I love Jesus came and he said all the time, Dad, what are you doing? I just want to follow you. I, he was that architect child on earth. And I'm just going to encourage you, you know, if you're feeling the burden of that, to lift it up to God. If you're feeling the burden of your sin, you're kind of going, you know what? And you maybe, maybe never, ever in your life, have just said, God, I, I need to trust that you can forgive me. Jesus came so you could receive life and forgiveness to not carry that burden anymore. And if you're carrying that burden and you know that you're not right with someone, I, I encourage you to get that thing right. Get it in the open, confess it, and let it go. Lift it to God today. Whatever those burdens might be, some of you are feeling lost and loneliness. And God's leading you through a time of wilderness. But can you trust him just like a child? Because what we want to do is have hearts that are engaged with him, playful hearts, full of joy. Even though you're doing the serious work of whatever it is you're doing else in life, we know that God is here and provides for us.